0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Rebecca Friedman-Listner. Rebecca today is an assistant professor in the Strategic and Operational Research Department at the U.S. Naval War College. But I first met Rebecca when she was an, uh, a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, Rebecca's uh, focus is on international security and U.S. foreign policy. She has written a series of articles on American foreign policy in the Trump era and then looked forward to the era after Trump. In particular, she's written a piece in Foreign Affairs in 2017 titled The National Security Strategy is Not a Strategy. This soon after the release by the Trump administration of the NSS. Rebecca therefore has a lot to say about uh, American uh, strategy, American foreign policy, both in the current era in the uh, period of the Trump administration and of course looking forward beyond the Trump administration. Um, It's a great pleasure to be able to introduce to you Rebecca for this a particular podcast episode, episode 25 of Shaking the Global Order, American foreign policy in the age of Trump. So let me turn to introduce Rebecca Friedman-Lisner. Well, welcome, Rebecca. It's a real pleasure to have you with us here uh, at the Global Symmetry podcast.
1: Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Alan.
0: It's great. So look, um, uh, along with your colleague, Mira Rap Hooper, you had a piece recently published in Foreign Affairs, uh, in fact the May-June issue, the latest issue, uh, and it's entitled The Open World, What America Can Achieve After Trump. And there you got, I mean, there's a, you know, discussion obviously going on amongst our colleagues uh, about, you know, the possible return to the liberal order, uh, in America's dominant role or not, you guys are pretty clear, uh, you you both are uh, right, uh, they hope that once he is gone, the United States will resume the role it has occupied since the fall of the Soviet Union, as the uncontested hegemon ruling benevolently, albeit imperfectly, over a liberalizing world, it won't. Um, So why did you and your colleagues uh, argue that position, Rebecca?
1: Well, Alan, I think there are two elements to this. One is why we cannot return to the liberal universalism of the post-Cold War era, and also why we should not do so. Mm -hmm. So the reason why we cannot return is because simply illiberal powers, which is to say, namely China, but also a resurgent Russia, have emerged as authoritarian competitors, that are challenging the United States and challenging American power in ways that we hadn't seen since the fall of the Soviet Union. And although China and Russia differ from each other in many important respects, it's important to note that both are authoritarian powers, they both exist within what we call the liberal international order, and yet neither are actually liberalizing. So that would seem to invalidate one of the core assumptions of liberal universalism. The sort of end of history assumption that ultimately through participation in the liberal international order powers like russia and china would ultimately come to look more like the united states so that's why we cannot but there's also an element of why we should not and that's basically because liberal universalism i think actually makes for bad strategy and the reason for that is that it lacks any natural limits and just looking at the united states post cold war record on military interventions gives a really good example of why this is so, because without any clear definition of American interest to guide intervention decisions and to force prioritization between them, the United States has pursued them in a fairly scattershot manner. Mm -hmm. So I think by retreating from these sort of universalizing ambitions, we can actually do much better as shrewd strategists and take on a world that's actually gonna be much more contested, much more competitive than the one to which we've become accustomed most recently.
0: Um, Fair, and what you call for is something you call an openness-based strategy. And what you say is, again in this article, rather than wasting its still considerable power, obviously you're referring to the United States, on a quixotic bid to restore the liberal order or to remake the world in its own image, the United States should focus on what it can realistically achieve. So you say openness, not dominance, as you're describing, should be the goal. But my question to you is but after the global financial crisis of 2008, and certainly the Obama administration, this does not seem to be a system where the United States was, uh, you know, in effect trying to maintain or obtain uh, uh, liberal universalism.
1: Well, I think it depends on your point of comparison. So if you're comparison, comparing the Barack Obama administration to the George W. Bush administration, then certainly the commitment to, you know, armed democracy promotion, the sort of more messianic, neoconservative view of the use of American power. Certainly all of that abated quite a bit between the Bush administration and the Obama administration. Right. But at the same time, the Obama administration still pursued military interventions for liberal ends. You could think about the Afghanistan surge decision early in the Obama administration or the Libya R2P intervention as clear examples. Um, and it also sought to advance liberalism, within the context of international and regional institutions, and here you could think about the way in which the Obama administration, for example, opposed Chinese institutional innovations like the AIIB for fear of their insufficient liberalism. So certainly the Obama administration was not the high watermark of liberal universalism or sort of liberal crusading, um, but certainly the American foreign policy pursued under President Obama was still very much inflected by this ambition.
0: Well, okay, so let's let's look even further. You know, I, um, I am thinking more about uh, John Eikenberry. Clearly, John is, you know, at the forefront of looking at the liberal international order. And he poses, in fact, that there are two uh, models that uh, seem to have evolved over the period after the end of the Second World War, not the Cold War, but the end of the Second World War he describes something which he calls a thin social purpose liberal order and then a thick uh... social purpose order the thick being the uh, dense set of agreements, shared commitments, exactly what you're arguing it seems to me in terms of lit- liberal universalism But the point is that we've seen more than one model of the liberal order and I'm wondering if you see uh, what you're arguing as distinct from the thin social purpose liberal order that he does talk about and that dominated uh, the liberal international order for decades up until the time of, the, of what Charlie uh, Krautheimer called the unipolar moment.
1: Right. Well, so I think there are a number of ways to parse this. And I should start by saying, I mean, John Eikenberry has done exceptionally important work, and he very much set the terms for the debate that we're having right now, conceptually, theoretically, and empirically. Right. Um, So, you know, his body of work is really important, foundational, really, for these conversations that we're now having very much in earnest. And, you know, he was at the forefront of that. Right. But I have to say that there's quite a bit of problematic fuzziness in this particular rendering. And I think, you know, in the in the article you quote, he's describing liberal internationalism, right, which I actually think is distinct from the liberal international order uh, because liberal internationalism, at least to me, describes a certain American strategy that the United States pursued, I think, correctly states for much of the post-World War II period, um, which I think is different than the liberal international order, which also refers to the dense web of international interactions uh, for which liberal internationalism served as a foundation, but I think really which grew out from that and entailed many other actors and goes well beyond just American unilateral strategy. But to return to this question of liberal internationalism and what it means, I mean, I think there's just a basic problem here, which is that if liberal internationalism means everything, it's thin and also it's thick, and it includes all these different shades of gray, then I think it also means nothing at all, right? And this is related to a broader problem I have um, in the sort of international relations theory uh, literature on grand strategy where there's really not a lot of sharpness in the way that we measure and define instances of grand strategic change. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, what I mean by liberal internationalism is basically a specific American strategy that promotes and elevates democracy, free trade, institutionalized cooperation, all by active American engagement in the world. Um, And what it does, as I said, is it pursues a vision of international order that's predicated on the primacy of liberalism in both the political and economic senses. So by stepping back from liberal universalism... And actually accepting a greater role for illiberal states like China and Russia in international and regional governance. I think an openness strategy is actually an important departure from both what John espouses in his more prescriptive work and also what he describes in his more explanatory empirical work. Um, And I think it's important to note that, you know, to embrace the strategy of openness is quite explicitly not to return to some form of order or some form of American strategy that existed in the past. We're trying to chart a new approach to the future that is responsive to what we see as fairly fundamental, domestic and international changes uh, that prevent us from returning to foreign policy business as usual uh, once Trump departs the Oval Office.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, You know, it's clear that it's complex and maybe, maybe fuzzy. Um, the earlier version certainly seemed to acknowledge and accept, at least at some level, um, illiberal states uh, in that. But, but let me ask you, really, so how do you see uh, this open base strategy really working, practically working, uh, assuming that the United States were to adopt it?
1: Well, practically working. I mean, what we've laid out in our article is mm-hmm. you know a, a fairly broad strategic vision, right? We're basically trying to articulate here are the core national interests and the priorities that we think ought to guide American foreign policy um, as we move forward. Uh, so, in providing that sort of lodestar for American foreign policy, there's still, of course, much that needs to be uh, fleshed out in terms of how this. Um, translates into concrete implementation. And I should say that this foreign affairs article is actually part of a larger book project in which we will undertake a lot of that much clearer specification. So um, if you have something in mind, I'd be happy to talk about it. But broadly speaking, what this is, is a strategic framework that aims to guide discrete foreign policy choices down the line. Okay. Uh,
0: well, and you say a more modest goal, <clears throat> ensuring that all countries are free to make independent political economic and military decisions. I assume that's the kind of the underlying core uh, basis uh, for uh, American policy and the presumption of others operating within this uh, within this system, right? I presume it's not yeah, just an American. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. So, but, you know, put, put it a bit more explicitly, the central goal of the openness strategy is to prevent closed spheres of influence. And so basically this construct accepts that global power shifts mean that China will become more influential in Asia as its relative capabilities increase. And so to build a sustainable order, we need to make space for the growing role that this necessarily implies for Beijing and also to pursue cooperation where possible. Um, but we also need to define the limits of Chinese influence, particularly given a China that appears interested in seeking regional hegemony. And so that's why a strategy of openness really draws the line at states that dominate the political, economic or military decision making of neighboring states, um, which would basically indicate that a closed sphere of influence would be in the offing. Um, In addition to preventing closed spheres of influence in key regions, we also seek to maintain the openness of the space and maritime global commons and also to continue a policy of democracy support that supplants the policy of democracy promotion that the United States has focused on in recent years.
0: Um, And sorry, what do you mean by democracy support? I mean, would you, you know, if you're looking for instance at the, um, uh, the Orange Revolution in the Ukraine—that's okay. That 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 kind of policy is uh, acceptable in the openness uh, in the openness framework.
1: So there are two different elements to democracy support. Okay. One, and 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 I think this is an important distinction because by no means is this an argument that the United States should be you know giving up on democracy in some sort of fundamental sense. So the first element of this is domestic. Right. There's okay. sort of this long standing debate. Right. That I think, you know, Wally McDougall and his um, excellent book captures really well. This debate about whether the United States is essentially a promised land or a crusader state. Right. Is the role of American democracy to basically be sort of a shining beacon on the hill or do we need to go out and actually you know spread democracy uh, at the tip of a spear in the way that we have sometimes done. Right. Um, And and here, the openness strategy very much aligns with the first perspective, the one that sees the United States more as a promised land. And this strategy is absolutely consistent with strengthening of American democracy at home, which is absolutely essential, you know, not only to make sure that we're living our values in the most fundamental way, but also as a basis for uh, the construction of sound strategy that then redounds to our benefit internationally. Now, internationally, democracy support basically means working alongside our democratic allies, partners, friends, in order to strengthen their own democracies, in order to bolster them against the types of interference that we've seen, whether Russian election interference or Chinese more subtle attempts at you know political interference and coercion, and to try to increase their defenses against all of those things, uh, basically to shore up democracies where they already exist and where they seek American aid.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's look at some of the instrumentalities then, because uh, you suggest again in in, in the article, and I, I recognize that this is work in progress, and you have a uh, uh, you will be providing a much more elaborate uh, discussion as time goes on. But you you identify uh, the formal institution, particular you say the UN UN Security Council in particular have a major role to play in enabling here its collaboration with obviously illiberal states and in this case Beijing and Moscow and you say they're both highly invested in the Council's legitimacy um, uh, and it, it could serve as a useful coordinating mechanism on issues where great power interests overlap especially if it's reformed obviously to include others but I mean and others meaning at least Germany, India, and Japan, you mentioned them, and there could be others as well. But, you know, I, I look at the, uh, the history of this formal institution, and in particular, the UN Security Council, and I don't, I don't see where you're coming out, uh, uh, in this kind of collaborative mode. I mean, it's evident when you look at instances like Syria or otherwise, uh, the UN Security Council is paralyzed. Uh, And it cannot act. So I don't what why the focus on the U.N. other than, you know, wishful thinking, potentially, uh, of the ability in that forum to enhance collaborative behavior.
1: Well, as you know, as well as anyone, Alan, because of your work, um, of course, you know, the U.N. and the U.N. Security Council in particular is um, a flawed body that frequently encounters significant barriers to effectiveness. So by no means are we taking an overly rosy view of what cooperation will be possible. Cooperation will be discrete and it will be limited, mm-hmm. but as we say in the article, there are some areas where genuine interest convergence does exist and therefore cooperation may be possible. And so the role for the United Nations is to maintain an arena for this type of coordination between great powers uh, and the UN is actually quite well positioned to play this role because it has inclusive membership, which is to say you know both Russia China and other states are members of the UN Security Council and as a result it also has wide legitimacy both Russia and China really embrace the UN Security Council as a legitimate global governance body. And so even as we acknowledge that international politics are going to become more competitive, more rivalrous, it's nevertheless important to insulate cooperation from rivalry where we can. Okay. And the U.N. Security Council, I think, will play an important role in bringing that
0: up. All right. I mean, although yeah, obviously I have a certain predilection towards uh, looking at the informals and in particular uh, the G20, uh, but all, others as well. And, of course, there you do have uh, China and Russia and others. Um, And so, clearly, there are a variety of settings in which you could at least uh, um, calculate the possibility of collaboration uh, around a whole variety of issues, not just the great power security issues, but others as well, the existential issues, most particularly climate change, etc.,
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think I should also say, though, I mean, there's an element of our argument that speaks to the possibility for international cooperation broadly. And frankly, it's quite pessimistic. Um, And there, you know, there are two elements. So first is the international element because of where we stand geopolitically and the way in which we have, you know, rising powers that stand to continue rising. You know, I'm thinking here about China, but also, for example, about India. They have an incentive to defer any kind of international agreements until they're more powerful in the future, right? And in fact, we've seen over the past several years, a decrease in formal international agreements, not necessarily just for this reason, because there's also been something of an oversaturation problem, but the number of formal international agreements and treaties has actually gone down at the international dimension. But there's also a domestic dimension within the United States, wherein the acute political polarization that currently plagues Washington also itself militates against the conclusion of international agreements. They've become much harder to get through the Senate. And actually, you know, 2013 and 2015 were the first two years since World War II in which the U.S. Uh, concluded zero or actually ratified zero Article Two treaties. So it's also becoming harder for the United States to bind itself to formal international agreements. So I think the confluence of those domestic and international trends both mean that formalized, legalized interstate cooperation of the type that we have generally become accustomed to over the past 70 plus years is going to become decreasingly likely. And what we'll see is much more informal, shorter term, you know, creative and also not less universal forms of international cooperation going forward.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) clearly one area was climate change, is climate change. Um, And there, you know, a key element of what led to the Paris uh, Climate Change Agreement was a bilateral arrangement between the United States and China. Uh, And that this was formative in helping move the yardsticks, which the French were quite adroit at, in ultimately reaching a much larger uh, a much larger agreement, um, but it, the base was there. Um, it is also true, of course, that um, the current administration, the Trump administration, um, has with, uh, has sought to withdraw. Yet it hasn't yet withdrawn uh, from Paris, and, and uh, the likelihood of collaboration with China is not high right at the moment. Not around uh, that issue, in any case, right.
1: But I think that perfectly illustrates the challenges that we're up against. I mean, even as some discrete cooperation is possible, it really faces significant headwinds, you know, both insulating cooperation from rivalry and also insulating cooperation from pretty dramatic swings that may come with the changing between the parties in American domestic politics and sort of international whiplash and the difficulty that the United States has being a reliable counterparty in view of the political polarization we're experiencing domestically.
0: And how then Would your concept of openness, you know, in effect, militate against that that whiplash that you've just described?
1: Well, this is, frankly, it doesn't right? Um, This is is not a strategy that aims to fix the United States' domestic problems. It's one that aims to be more robust to them to the extent that that's possible. But, you know, certainly polarization is something that we've looked at quite a bit in the context of this broader research project. And it's very hard to gain traction on, you know, potential solutions. How do we start, you know, turning the tide? I mean, one suggestion um, that you see in some of the social science literature indicates that economic inequality is actually highly correlated with partisan polarization Mm -hmm. so maybe as a matter of domestic policy if the united states can start wrapping its arms around the domestic income inequality problem that might start to create inroads on the partisan polarization problem now i think you know the other way you could think about the partisan polarization problem is that you know it's easy to be polarized in a world in which you don't face an acute threat Um, and it may be that if the united States, China. Uh, relationship becomes increasingly adversarial and Americans come to see China as a significant threat, which by and large they don't today, perhaps that could be the glue that binds Americans back together on matters of foreign policy, although of course that's hardly something we would want to wish for.
0: Yes, okay, fair enough. So let's look at a a few of the current uh, foreign policy uh, problems and look at it uh, potentially through the lens of uh, this openness strategy. Uh, Where do you think, uh, what's gone wrong with the current Trump policy in Korea and how could an openness strategy in effect um, uh, improve that situation?
1: So in my view this sort of central failing of the Trump administration's uh, Korea policy such as it is, is its basic refusal to look the DPRK problem directly in the face, right? Which is basically that North Korea has nuclear weapons and they're not giving them up anytime soon. Right, um, right. So I think the central task for American policy is to create a robust deterrence architecture that ensures the Korean Peninsula and indeed the entire Asia-Pacific region does not erupt in violent conflict. And I think the sort of wishful thinking that the United States is going to somehow bring about disarmament of the North Korean nuclear program via these sort of um, free-willing leader-level summits is extremely unrealistic, and I think that that dream is quickly unraveling. Right. Uh, and separate but related, I mean, the Trump administration, particularly President Trump, needs to stop pretending as if North Korea is some friend of the United States. I mean, this Trump-Kim romance is painful to watch and clearly isn't yielding results, except insofar as it's actually operating in favor of the North Koreans. So, you know, more broadly, I think that the North Korea challenge is situated within the openness strategy by virtue of the fact that it implicates most directly our allies in South Korea of course um, but also our allies in Japan and the United States hold defense posture in the asia-pacific region precisely because of you know the increasing advances in North Korean nuclear weapons but especially in their missile delivery systems mm-hmm. um, so you know building a more robust deterrent deterrence architecture is essential to maintaining the United States foothold and also the strength of our alliance in the region, which are essential not just in view of the North Korean deterrence problem, but also as a matter of maintaining favorable regional power balances with an eye towards a rising China.
0: So so are you suggesting a certain uh, balancing strategy, looking directly at South Korea and looking at Japan? What should they be doing, as you would see it, in, in the framing of an openness strategy? What, What should the allies be up to?
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, especially um, looking at the rhetoric coming out of Tokyo, they're very much bought into this sort of idea of openness, right? The rhetoric that I think has really caught on is this sort of idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific, right? Um, And, you know, you could have a conversation about the balance between Um, sort of like the more traditional kind of liberal political elements of that and the economic elements of that. But I think, you know, Japan in particular is pretty well aligned with um, what the United States is describing here. So, to sort of zoom out a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this just isn't about the North Korea problem. But what both Korea and Japan can do, I think, is basically help to build a regional security architecture that's more robust to China's rise, right? Because if our central goal is to foreclose the creation of a closed sphere of influence that China might pursue sometime in the future, then we need to, you know, create the military balances, but also the political, economic, diplomatic structures that are necessary to deter them from pursuing it and Um, So what does that mean? I think that means for Korea and Japan specifically, you know, strengthening multilateral ties to include the ties between those two countries, which are of course historically fraught and contentious. Um, It means putting more meat on the bones of this idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific and really fleshing it out in in terms of what it means for each of their national security strategies. Um, It means enhancing national defenses. Um, and it also means considering how they might be able to contribute economic, diplomatic, um, and other types of tools in support of, you know, a broader regional strategy that has its eyes on China. Mm -hmm. And as it does so, I think, regards to the U.S. specifically, you know, both of these countries need to take seriously the rhetoric that is coming out of Washington on this question of burden sharing. Now, of course, I think, you know, the way that the president often frames, uh, The United States demands as they relate to burden sharing are quite unreasonable, but the overall message about the need for our allies to do more um, is bipartisan and it's also longstanding. And so if I were advising the leaders of either of those countries, I would um, recommend that they, you know, continue to think about what kind of contributions they can make Mm to alliance security, including in you know new domains where they haven't necessarily contributed in the past. This doesn't all have to be about you know defense spending and defense buildups. It can also be about you know the way in which um, you know Korea and Japan can both be helpful in countering the more coercive elements of China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, by providing things like technical assistance to recipient countries so that they can you know adequately vet the contracts that they're getting from the Chinese and make sure that um, they're congruent with national interests
0: is there is there an element and uh, I'll put it no stronger than an element of rhyming between the openness strategy <clears throat> and the realist view of kind of offshore balancing that is promoted by people like Steve Walt and to some degree John Mearsheimer is that is there some element of connection there
1: um I don't think so. We're certainly realists, and by no means would cede the ground of realism just to the offshore balancers, because I think there are a lot of different ways to develop realist strategies. Mm -hmm. Um, But the defining feature of offshore balancing is precisely its offshore nature. Basically, the idea that the United States doesn't really need much by way of forward operating positions, doesn't need by much by way of international allies, um, in order to advance it's national security, um, and no, we don't see it that way. I mean, we see continued American engagement overseas, the okay. maintenance and strengthening of our alliances as um, absolutely vital to pursuing openness into the future.
0: Okay, so then, then how would the United States, going forward and in the frame of your openness strategy, how, might they, uh, re- how would the U.S. react to, let's say, provocation from either Russia or, let's say, in the Ukraine, or China in the South China Sea, right? H- how would this operate then?
1: Right, so, I mean, thinking about the South China Sea specifically, mm-hmm. I mean, openness means that China can't use its now newly constructed military bases in the South China Sea to restrict maritime commerce, right? The free access to the global commons right. in the sea and in space is a central tenet of the openness strategy. So, um, you know, making sure that the Chinese do not in some ways restrict maritime commerce, and it's not to say that there's there's indications that they're moving in that direction, but that would be sort of a clear violation of the principles of openness that we seek to advance. I mean, similarly looking to Russia and Ukraine, um, you know, an openness strategy means the U.S. has an interest in uh, restraining Russian manipulation or circumvention of Ukrainian political independence. Now, We don't prejudge the tools that would be required to achieve those ends and you could certainly have a robust strategy about what is the best way in which to ensure china does not um, restrict maritime commerce in the south china sea or what is the best way to ensure that Mm -hmm. russia does not you know annex important elements of ukraine i mean in both cases i think you know, significant portions of those incursions are the status quo. So we're no longer in the realm of deterrence, right? We're in the realm of compellence and trying to really change behavior and roll it back, which is a different type of problem. But certainly as a go forward matter, um, I think an openness strategy would both seek to deter violations of openness by both Russia and China and also um, and would do so both via um, sort of denial strategies, making it harder for both these countries to Um, contravene openness in the ways that they have, but also by punishment and thinking about what the best types of reactions are, like what can the United States do with its allies and on a multilateral basis to make violations of openness um, less attractive for those states.
0: So uh, you're you're tending to focus, and this is not a criticism, it's just you're tending to focus more on kind of deterrent activity rather than more forward-like strategies, including Uh, more robust kind of uh, military use? I mean, I'm just trying to articulate uh, for myself what this notion of openness could you know, what's the range here?
1: Yeah, I mean certainly um, an openness strategy accepts the likelihood of fairly intense competition and possibly also conflict into the future Mm -hmm. Um, and it doesn't Prejudge the need for any tools in particular. However, one of the observations that we make in the foreign affairs article is that we actually think that a lot of the conflict of the future is actually going to occur in the subconventional domain, right? right? Because right. sort of technological innovation, emerging military technologies have created these new ungoverned spaces, and as geopolitics become more contested, there's more of an incentive um, for countries like Russia, China, but also others to operate asymmetrically. Uh, in that space as a means of undermining the United States and undermining certain American interests. Um, And so for the United States to compete more effectively in that subconventional space, it's not just going to be a question of sort of more military power and its application just in new domains. It also has to do with better integrating all the different tools of American power, which is to say economic, political, military, diplomatic, into a much more coherent whole. And so I think practically as you're implementing an openness strategy in you know, the world of the next 10 years and where the conflict is most likely to occur, I think that a purely military instrument is going to be inadequate, but of course remains part of the mix.
0: Okay, I mean, so so it, it, it seems as if the, there is a, there's a military component, but it's better integrated. But how do you see that really being possible in the face of the polarity that you're arguing, really, on the domestic level. I mean, there's been a tendency for U.S. policy, it seems to me, increasingly to rely on kind of military, if not first, pretty soon, uh, right? Uh, and not, not these other elements. And how do you prevent that kind of recourse to the military option Uh, when you haven't yet addressed or can't easily address uh, the polarity problem, the political polarity problem in the United States?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not sure that the United States' over-reliance on the use of force is actually caused primarily by political polarization. Okay. I think that um, it has much more to do with the sort of massive um, budget enjoyed by the Department of Defense, the uh, decreasing capacity of American diplomats and also sort of USAID, international aid workers, And a lot of that certainly flowed from the dynamics of the war on terror, I think less so than political polarization itself. So a big part of this, I think, is going to be actually to expand the range of effective tools that the United States has at its disposal. Um, and that does mean, you know, more funding and capacity for the State Department and for USAID. Um, it also means just on an interagency basis, better integration um, of all the different uh, agencies that have a stake in some of these questions. Like that means, you know, having DOD at the table with state and USAID, but also having Treasury at the table and Commerce at the table mm-hmm. in recognition of the fact that these problems are really multifaceted. Um, and I think, you know, barring some elements of the Republican Party and perhaps some elements of the Democratic Party, there's sufficient support for things like, you know, measures like funding the State Department um, that, you know, hopefully some measure of improvement should be possible there. And certainly when you're talking about the more procedural elements of just improving the interagency process so that um, the application of American foreign policy is uh, more integrated, that's something that, you know, is really has to do with executive branch function. And I don't think um you know, is up to congressional you know authorization or whatever it might be that might get caught up in the crosshairs of this polarization problem.
0: So, so uh, the hope then, if we're looking uh, forward, and obviously not necessarily to this particular administration, is a more whole concept of uh, application of foreign policy tools, um, and which uh, clearly uh, or uh, seemingly, is not part of what we see today with this current administration.
1: Yes, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, there it more has to do with a sort of strategy capacity implementation issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, this administration seems to have pretty clear views about the primacy of the military in American foreign policy. I mean, I basically agree with the view that Trump at his heart is a militarist um, and really likes the sort of decisive nature of, of military demonstrations of force. Um, and so certainly in this administration, that capacity uh, doesn't exist in the way that you would want it to for the pursuit of an openness strategy.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really want to thank you, Rebecca, for trying to you know describe more fully uh, this openness strategy today for us. And I look forward to seeing some of the further reflections that you will have along with your colleagues uh on this openness strategy going forward
1: well it's really my pleasure alan thank you for your excellent questions which were probing and provocative as as one would expect from you (laughs) and um it's really excellent to have the opportunity to uh, have this dialogue i look forward to continuing and hopefully to coming back when the book is out
0: oh absolutely we will definitely make an appointment for that You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.